these days together, we've been talking a lot about uh, civilization, and uh, we have done uh, that, or we are doing that, not only uh, to, to understand what's going on in our world, in our society, in our lifetime, but also to know what our responsibilities are. Um, I love history. <laughs> <laughs> but history is good only and is serviceable and good only when it helps us to uh, understand our present and so that we may spend our life, uh, as Paul says, not beating the air uh, somehow randomly as life comes, but with, uh, with knowledge, with understanding. Um, with a, a clear, uh, hopefully, a clearer understanding of who we are to be and what we are to do. Uh, that is true. That is so true today, uh, of course. Um, One of the risks of, uh, you know, studying history or loving history is that, um, again, you, became, you become so enamored and taken up with the battles of, the, of days gone by that you forget the battles that we need to fight today. And these battles are, uh, are most of all and primarily... Uh, a battle, a battle of truth, um, in 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 every way. Uh, so, what what have we said about our civilization? Um, well, if I can wrap it up very very simply, is uh, there are actually three stages in our civilization. We can really say that in the 1700s. Uh, our civilization has been uh, in the planning, the ideological, philosophical planning. Then in the 1800s, uh, in the making, in the making. And then in the 1900s, in the dying, in the dying. Uh, we have underscored the fact that ours is a dying civilization. Uh, it is it's a slow progress. Um, even though uh, its 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 starting point <laughs> is quite clear in many ways. Uh, when was it that our civilization reached its peak? Well, probably the most uh, important date here is 1914, just prior to the collapse of the First World War, because that was the summit of what they called the Belle Epoque, the beautiful uh, epoch or era or time. It was a time of the greatest advancement in uh, as far as material things and social things, 
but all, especially in terms of prosperity. Um, and so that's why they called it so. Um, and then all of a sudden, 1914, as the Titanic, unsinkable Titanic sank, so uh, our unsinkable society began to sink too. Um, it's a, it's been a slow process, you know. Civilizations don't die abruptly, generally speaking. It takes it takes a long time, a long time in the planning, a long time in the making, and a long time in the dying. Where are we? We are, as we said, uh, I would say at the very end of that modern project that was conceived in the 1700s. What does that mean? Well, if history goes like it always gone, we must be at the beginning of a new civilization. Uh, we are, in fact, living in a time of transition between the, the, the death of, the, of mo modernity and the birth of a new postmodern world. A history has always gone like that. Civilizations have come and gone, come and gone. And if it is true, as it is very evident, that ours is a dying civilization, and we are at the end of it, then we must be at the beginning <coughs> of a new project. And what's the new project? Well, it's a project like never before, so they say. Uh, it's, uh, it's a civilization that will encompass not just a nation, even though bringing together a nation may be very difficult. You know something about that. We know something about that. Italy was only able to become a nation in 1870 when we finally got rid of these Austrians and French and you know, Spanish out of Italy. Uh, the wars of independence. Um, but it is difficult to bring together a continent, and, but it's even more difficult to bring together a whole world. And this is what the new civilization is looking like. That's, that's the aim, that's the goal. It is not something um, future, but it is something that is happening now. So we are living in this amazing time of transition between the death of the uh, you know, project of the modern world to the birth of a postmodern world, which does not bring together just a nation or a group of nations or a continent, but the aim is to bring together the whole world. Well, you know, this type of civilization that they uh, are wanting to realize, and in many ways they are succeeding, uh, is bound to be the ultimate. You, you can't go beyond that. <laughs> I mean, this global one world government, you can't go beyond that. That's bound to be the, the ultimate civilization. Um, so, this is where you and I are living. And I don't know if your legs are shaking, but they should. 
You know, they should. This is not a time when we can afford, if we ever had, that, that we can afford, um, you know, taking life silly and, you know, uh, you know glibly. And uh, we're living in very serious times. We cannot afford to live uncommitted lives. We need to be full-fledged committed with loving the Lord with all of our mind and all of our soul and all of our heart and all of our strength. Now we must be balanced. We must not run wild (laughs) with religion. But we know that the knowledge of God is not religion. The knowing the Lord in in a wholesome and sincere and true way will not undo a human person. It, it will save the person and it will equip the person to be able to serve uh, the Lord and the ends of the Lord um, wholeheartedly. So, we must be able. I know we're finite. I know most of our churches are small. We are small in Italy. And even the largest church that supports us is still small in comparison to what's going on out there. But we, the, because we are Christians, we are believers. We can, through the scripture, acquire a knowledge of what's happening um, on a global scale. Because our purpose, our individual purpose, our local purpose, as individuals, as in our marriages, in our families, in our church and in our churches, if it can be understood properly, it can only be understood properly if we understand it in the light of the overall context. If it is true that the modern project uh, is not only dying, but it's dead... (laughs) Uh, and that we are now seeing the beginning of a new civilization which is uh, called the ultimate because you can't go beyond what's global, what's international then what, what's this? How, how should we understand this? Where does it come from? Where does it want to go? What are its foundations? And mostly Again, what are we to do? What is our understanding? What is our answer? What are we to be and to do individually and community-wise in the light of the world in which we live now, which is very much so a globally-oriented world? Um, Well... Let us go back to a principle that we um, we already spoken about. That our present can only be understood if we understand the past from which it came. That, that is always the case. That is always the case. And this is all the more true uh, when we when we would talk about this globalism or globalization. Uh, why? Because they are presented it, really they are presenting it as something new. It is something that it is new because it could not be accomplished before. 
men did not have the means, even the technological means, to bring together such a thing with all the interconnections uh, that are necessary to realize a one world government. Um, so they, they speak of it as something new. The opportunity. Again, if we want to fix a date, which is very important, it will be the 26th of December of 1991, when the Soviet Union dissolved. See, that was that's another important date. What happened when the Soviet Union dissolved? Well, what happened was that um, the Cold War ended. This the, the world divided into what they called the, the Eastern and Western blocs ended. With the, with the fall of the Soviet Union, then one of the blocs was gone. <laughs> and now there was an opportunity, therefore, to build one world. Not a world split in half, but one world. That's why in many statements of George Bush I, uh, we hear this refrain, you know, this new world, this new uh, new world that he was talking, a new world order that he was talking about. We are in 1992, 1993. Why? Because with the Soviet Union being gone, there is now an opportunity to to realize this unified globalism. For the benefit of whom, exactly? Of whom? Well, perhaps, you know, we'll be talking about more of that this evening. But for right now, we need to kind of sift through all this propaganda and try to really understand what's happening so that we may be and we may do what is right in our generation. Um, so... Is it true? Let us, let us ask the question. Is it true that this uh, global design for a one world government is new? And the answer, of course, is no. It is not new at all. Even if we have just a very general understanding of history, as we have already said, uh, in our you know, past meetings, it is that history has been a succession of civilizations. We, we saw that. What we need to add to that is that it seems that so many of these, especially the bigger civilizations, uh, they, have all, they, they all have tried to encompass the whole world. Uh, if I would have used some images you know, today, we would have looked at some of the uh, maps uh, of the ancient, the ancient civilizations that have come and gone through history. But look at the expansion of Egypt, uh, for example. It, it, go, it went well beyond its boundary. It conquered all of Palestine and also tried to invade the Mesopotamia area to expand, to expand. Now we knew, we, we, we know that, you know, pharaohs 
thought themselves as divine. And this is, one, this is what they wanted to have. They wanted to have the world. And if we study the Assyrian civilization, we see the same thing. Expanding, expanding, taking a large portion of Egypt as well, but also the whole of Palestine and the whole of the Mesopotamia area. And the Babylonian uh, Empire was very similar. And, uh, of course, the Persian Empire also was similar to that. Let us think of Alexander the Great. How far did he enlarge <laughs> the boundary of his empire? It was amazing. when all the way to China. It reached India. And it, it was stretching uh, over the Mediterranean as well. And, and after that, of course, then we come to the Romans. And when you talk about Rome, you talk about a very small village. You know, when you, you talk about, you know, the 15th century prior to Christ that grows and grows and grows and becomes this huge empire that actually, uh, you know, possesses almost all of Europe, all the way to Germany, all the way to England, all the way to Spain the whole of the coast of North Africa and then Palestine and Greece. I mean, the Romans were <coughs> everywhere. Even the Eastern European countries they invaded. And then, of course, it all fragmented and collapsed, you know, finally. Um, but then, remember what happened after. What was the next uh, great... Uh, civilization so-called the Muslim Islam and Islam became gigantic I Islam in its very origin was a, a religion of conquest uh, from the very origin of it and has pursued this conquest uh, all through its history uh, and so we have the the, the war <coughs> this conflict of civilizations between Europe and the Muslim world, as they try to englobe Europe by taking over Spain, which they did, and of course then coming also towards the eastern, you know, borders, uh, the Europeans were able to to you know to stop them, um, to stop them. But but it was um, these also were fateful days. <laughs> um, now after Islam. What we have is Genghis Khan, is the Mongols of Asia, and which was probably the greatest world empire that was ever, ever created in ancient history. Uh, we're talking about the 12th century uh, after Christ. Uh, but it basically conquered all of Asia, <laughs> parts of Africa and a good part of Eastern Europe. Um, and then, of course, uh, we have the fragmentations of the nations in Europe, the rise of the nations such as France and such as England. Finally, you know, Johnny come late, Italy. And... Uh, but then, of course, we have Napoleon, 
and he tried to take over and conquer all of Europe and he also went to Africa and you know Palestine and and Russia you know he sent 400,000 soldiers to take over Russia 400,000 died in the process but then uh, of course we come to our modern times because Napoleon is uh, the end of the 1700s the beginning of the 1800s then of course we we you know finally come to to the 19th century and we know what has happened there uh, we know that Hitler's design was not only to make Germany great <laughs> uh, its design was to take over the world with a thousand year kingdom or reign as he thought and he tried and a hundred million people died in the process and then we also know that there was an ideological spread of communism that after the end of the war, uh, the war uh, it spread everywhere. It was all over Asia. It was all over Africa. It was spreading all over Europe and also in South America. And uh, you know, because the, the ideology of communism is, is not a... It's not a nationalistic ideology. It's a globalistic ideology to begin with. To begin with. Um, so, if we read the biographies, this is one of the projects that I pursued through the years, reading the biographies of the Caesars, of the Emperors, of the Napoleon, of the Alexanders, and the, the Hitlers of history. And my question was, what moved these men? How did they come to be uh, possessed by this desire for world conquest? And I look for traces, I look for um, evidences. And uh, for example, I, you know, I read the book on uh, the Gallic Wars written by Caesar. Uh, which describes the taking over of, of, of you know, France, what today we call France and Germany, the Anglo-Saxon you know, territories. Uh, they slaughtered hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, the Romans did. Why? Well, Hitler could only say, for the glory of Rome. The glory of Rome. And so, now, every time, and we all have also had we also say this every time in history. You see something that is universal, something that is you know persistent, something that takes place relentlessly through history. That tells you that you're up against something that has that resides deep, <laughs> deep down in man's nature. It is not something that comes out here and there. This is something that has been with humanity. Uh, the whole, all through history to where all through history we have seen these uh, this emperors, these monarchs, these kings, these mighty conquerors that somehow were able to gain um, control over the mind of millions and millions of people that pledged allegiance to realize their criminal ideas, to 
destroy, to conquer, destroy, slaughter, massacre hundreds of millions of people. For what end exactly? What's the purpose of this? And even uh, what what is behind all this? How how can, for example, uh, how could the millions of Germans adhere to Hitler's ideology and trying to implement it and do what they did? I mean, they they gassed uh, millions of uh, children, women elderly folks and human beings to begin with. How in the world can man be reduced to that? Uh, So, again, it becomes important here to study the propaganda at Hitler's time, the propaganda at the time of Mussolini, the propaganda in Stalin's regime to see how these regimes were able to take control of people's mind and drive them to do what a, a sane person would never thought of, of doing, would, would never think of doing. And it happens all the time that after the destructions and after the massacres and after the genocides, then humanity like stops and says, what happened? How, how could this happen? What, what, <laughs> what came over us that we were brought to believe in fascism and you know, pursue these wild ideas of a new Roman Empire that was Mussolini's idea? After, after the dust settles and we see the millions of people slaughtered and the earth filled with blood, then people say, what happened? What happened? How could this happen? And they do not have answers. They do not have answers. See, that's why finally in the 1960s, they, they began to study the, uh, this, this drive towards aggression. This, this evil drive towards aggression. Why so late? <laughs> well, we, we gave an answer to that because the, the magnitude of man's ability to destroy humanity had reached a level unprecedented in history to where we have become able to destroy ourselves altogether. We could nuke the whole humanity to to utter annihilation. So we have to begin to think about this. (laughs) But the whole time the Bible has been addressing this theme. And because the Bible is a book of history, from the very beginning, the history of humanity, the rising of the first small tribal civilizations, and then the greater ones, and then Egypt, and then all the others... So the Bible is, is a, uh, a unique point of reference <laughs> to understand this. But also, the Bible is the Word of God. It's not the Word of man. And because it is the Word of God, it can give us understanding to where we can really see and understand what's behind all this. What's the nature? What's the origin? What's the plan? 
where, where does that spirit come from? That destructive, violent, seducive, evil, wicked spirit comes from that seems to be able to take over the whole of humanity. Only the Bible can give us answers for this predicament. And so, let us plunge in the Bible. And we'll go to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 10. And We are in the midst of a judgment chapter. <laughs> and I would have you to remember as a way of background that in the chapter, in the later chapter of Leviticus, uh, the Lord had made two promises to Israel. Promises of blessings and promises of curses, judgments. If you will uh, believe in me, love me and follow me and obey me and be my witness in the midst of this wicked world, I will bless you. But if you abandon me and you give yourself over to evil, then I will pursue you in a different way. I will judge you. And I will increase my judgments as your uh, apostasy increases to call you back, to call you back call you back to me. And so here, this is the context. God is promising judgment to Israel because Israel has abandoned God, has been pursuing idols, and has become an immoral uh, nation, a godless and immoral nation. So, for example, look at verse uh, 1 through 3. Woe to those who degree who decree unrighteous decrees. Mm. <laughs> How contemporary is that? <laughs> Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune which they have prescribed, to rob the needy of justice, and to take what is right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey, that they may rob the fatherless. What will you do in the day of judgment and in the desolation which will come from afar? You see, God is very interested in social justice, but not the kind of that a certain ideology is, you know, is promoting today. Uh, in fact, my own view is that, uh, let me be clear, you know, communistic or socialistic ideology leads to the very opposite of what it promises. Throughout history has done that. And, and that word that they like to use a lot, as my father liked to use it a lot, exploitation, <laughs> is exactly what takes place in socialistic countries to where a lot of people exploit the work and labor of other people to gain a benefit that didn't do anything to, to you know, contribute. Um, 
And so God is very concerned about the condition of the poor, of the widows, of the fatherless, of the weak and fragile and vulnerable in society. But he does it from his point of view. And with his understanding and his truth and his holiness and his justice and his mercy. But that is a justice and mercy that Israel does not want to know. So God promises judgment. Now look at the that very last word of verse 3. Where, um, I'm sorry. Uh, what will you do in the day of punishment and in the desolation which will come from afar? What was the desolation that was to come from afar? Well, verse 5. Woe to Assyria. Woe to Assyria. That was the desolation that was to come from afar. God, as He always done through history, was going to use, was going to use another nation to punish the nation of Israel. He's done it throughout history, beginning with Egypt, and then uh, all, all the way through. But at the same time, these are strange words because. Assyria here, the Assyrian Empire, uh, which is actually as yet to come to its full development at this time in history. We are towards the end of the 8th century BC with Isaiah. Uh, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. So Assyria was the rod of God's anger against Israel. And yet, God even promises to punish Assyria, the great Assyrian empire. Why? And the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I will send him against an ungodly nation and against the people of my wrath. I will give him charge to seize the spoil, to take the prey, to tread them down like the mire of the streets. So Assyria was to be used to, to judge Israel. But look at that word, yet, oh, yet. There's something wrong that Assyria did. Yet, Assyria, or he, <laughs> does not mean so, nor does he, his heart thinks so. But it is in his heart to destroy and cut off not a few nations. Oh, what a statement. See, God wanted to use the Assyrians to punish Israel. But as Assyria prospered as a civilization, according to God's goodness, they used that development to, as they say, as they say here, to cut off not a few nations, that is, many nations. Uh, so again, this idea of conquering the nations was birthed into the mindset of the Assyrian kings. And they began to expand militarily, uh, attacking, conquering, destroying, slaughtering. The judgment was only supposed to come towards Israel, on Israel, according to God's plan, or according to God's direct will. And yet, Assyria went beyond that and turned into a world power that wanted to take over the nations. 
For he says, are not my princes altogether kings? You see, that's pride. That's called pride. Verse 10. As my hand... Uh, as my hand has found the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images excelled those of Jerusalem and Samaria. This, these are the idols. Idolatry. It's always in the middle, this idolatry. Uh, and then, of course, verse 13. Uh, For he says, uh, Assyria, or he who is behind Assyria, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I am prudent. Also, I have removed the boundaries of the people. Now, uh, and have robbed their treasuries. Now, mind you, that word in the original is plural. If you checked in, in most other Bibles, it's plural. So, it, uh, in fact, uh, I have removed the boundaries of the people's. Or as other translation would have it, uh, other countries or other nations. And that plural is very important. <laughs> because that's exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> as we, can, uh, we have already seen. Of course, in verse 7. And uh, it is in his heart, you see the plan? To destroy, you see the evil, many nations. Cut off, not a few nations, but many. So this... Conquering, uh, you know, plan. And so, verse, um, in fact, it says uh, again, following, uh, reading still verse 13. So I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. My hand has found like a nest the riches of the peoples. As one gathers eggs that are left. I have gathered all the earth. That's another important statement. All the earth. And there was no one who removed his wing, nor opened his mouth with even a peep. So, uh, that's, that's the idea. <laughs> God makes civilizations to be born, to arise. He blesses them. But they pervert the, the goodness of God, the gifts of God, and make Him an instrument for uh, of world you know, conquer, uh, world conquest. And that was very much in the mind of the Assyrian kings, this plan, this idea, which God does not approve does not approve. Now, if you go to verse uh, chapter 13 of Isaiah, we'll be reading, first of all, verses 19 through uh, 20, speaking of Babylon at this time. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, it will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation, nor will the Arabian pitch tents there, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there. God here promises judgment on another uh, uh, 
world-conquering civilization. First the Assyrians, now the Babylonians, they come after. And so, let us plunge a little deeper here. If we go to chapter 14, still speaking of Babylon and... Uh, it says to the prophet, God says to the prophet, you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, we'll be reading verses 4 through 7, how the oppressor has ceased, the golden city ceased, the Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, he who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he who ruled the nations in anger. You see? You see? Conquering the world, conquering the nations is something God does not approve. The whole earth now is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. This is God is talking about the, the uh, demise of the Babylonian Empire and how many nations rejoiced. Because of that demise. Because now they can finally breathe. They can finally live. They can finally have a little joy in life. Now that this world dominating Babylon has been destroyed. By the judgment of God. Even though many would not recognize that. Uh, now let's move to verse 9. Hell from beneath is excited about you. Talking about, of course, the prince of Babylon, the king of Babylon. Uh, because he's brought down low, you see. He's brought down low into Sheol or in, you know, to hell. So, hell from beneath is excited about you. To meet you at your coming, <laughs> it stirs up the dead for you. And all the chief ones of the earth, it has raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. They shall all speak and say to you, Here you also become as weak as we? Have you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to Sheol. And the sound of your stringed instruments, the maggot is spread under you, and worms cover you. So they rejoice. The, the, the people that are in hell, the kings or the nations that are in hell, and some of these, I'm sure, will be those that the king of Babylon has, has killed himself. Now they welcome him. Oh, you come down with us too. What has happened to you? And they begin to taunt him. You used to be so mighty, so grand. You wanted to conquer the world, but now you've been brought low. What a message from God. And then look at verse 16 through 17. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, Is this a man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities? You see? You see what they're accusing him about, of? The king of Babylon, or the kings of Babylon, have been doing that. <laughs> they have been trying to conquer the world by destroying, taking over nations. But God has finally brought them down. And now they have sunk into hell where they receive uh, the reward for what they have done. And then, of course, 
verse 20 and 21 are also important. You will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land, slain your people. The brood of evildoers shall never be named. Prepare slaughter for his children because of their iniquity, the iniquity of their fathers, lest they rise up and possess the land and fill the face of the world with cities. God has brought uh, down the empire of Babylon and Babylon will not rise again ever in history. God does not want them to. That's what verse 20 and 21 say. Especially the end of verse 21. Lest they rise up and possess the land and fill the face of the world with cities. God does not want for Babylonian cities to fill the world. He does not want this one world you know, governed by this evil power. No, God does not want that. So... Uh, we need to plunge a little deeper yet, but still, let us stop a second. And you see, there are, there are many, many things that are said here, but I would like to call your attention to one item especially, and that's the item of violence, destruction, slaughter, the massacre. You know, they say the genocides have you know, begun in the, in the 20th century. <laughs> Well, that's not the case at all. That's not the case at all. How, how have most of previous civilizations died? Who has destroyed them? How were they wiped out? How many tribes, how many nations, how many sorts of peoples have been extinguished by this type of evil throughout history? Well, let me ask the questions. How many you know, peoples of ancient history have survived. The only peoples that have survived as a one-blood nation is Israel. That's only because of the providence of God. These genocides have been perpetrated all along. We don't want to admit that because that will make our history look very bad. But it is true. It is true. And so, we must ask the question. <laughs> we saw here the heart of a God <laughs> who loves especially the vulnerable, the weak, the widows, the fatherless, the impotence of the world. There are downtrodden and exploited or even destroyed by the powerful. God hates for that to happen. And we saw the magnitude of this here a little bit with the Assyrians, the Babylonians. But this is true all through history. Oh. And also, of fabric, it's history. Um, well, 
the type of you know jergo they're 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 talking about today, and the kind of propaganda that they are building up. Uh, Africa is is kind of described as as a beautiful continent, full of beautiful people that different from us evil have been corrupted by the ways of the Westerners that have, have gone there to colonize and to take over and to exploit and destroy. Now, I'm not a friend of colonization per se in the terms that has taken place through history because it, it has been exploitive, that is true. And there have been crimes and crimes and even genocides that have been perpetrated through means of that sort of co- colonization. But that, to admit that, does not m- mean that uh, Africa is a, a guiltless you know, nation that has been corrupted by the Westerners from, from Europe or uh, you know, the Northerns from Europe or the Westerns from America. Uh, do you know, for example, do you know? Now, these are not very popular books, but they can be purchased and read. Uh, we, we recently bought about 10 books in the, over the last two years about the, the history of slavery in Africa. And do you know that sl- slavery has always been practiced all over the continent? And that the reason why when this new world was you know, discovered, the reason why they went and got slaves in Africa is because slavery had been abolished in Europe through Christianity, through, through Christian influence. And they went to get them in Africa because Africa was full of people already enslaved. They were being enslaved as these tribal warfares that have been going on forever, we're continuing. The Europeans always only trade along the coast, but it was from the interiors that uh, poor African slaves were being brought to the coasts and then shipped over to uh, South or North America to be exploited here too. I'm not a friend of slavery, but any stretch of the imagination, I think it was... You talk about 10 million people that were enslaved, uh, brought over to North and South Africa. Uh, And the whole thing was criminal. But who participated in this criminality? (laughs) Everybody did. Everybody did. And when finally slavery was abolished in this country, it continued in Africa. And it's still there today. Uh, these are more like scholarly books, academic books. They're not very popular, <laughs> but I hope somebody would write on a popular, le- you know, level about slavery in Africa and what it actually was and still is today. The problem of Africa was is that there is no. No unifying culture in Africa. It is very much a completely fragmented country with tribe that where we're tribe is against tribe. It's very territorial. And of course, as you know, there's a lot of magic and witchcraft and, and devil worship. And so, um, how many 
smaller civilizations have been wiped out in Africa by Africans. Thousands, thousands. So no one is, uh, no one is uh, innocent here. No continent, uh, no people. We all have done much evil through history. Um, even the Africans did, as well as us. Um, so, the, the question now arises, how do you explain all this? How do you explain all of this evil? Because again, let me say it, the conquering of the nations melt, meant the massacre of hundreds of thousands or millions and tens of millions or now hundreds of millions of people. And the question is, what drove the mind and the heart of these world conquerors? World conquerors. How, how could they embrace that type of you know, career? How could they pursue that type of plan? When, when they knew it would, it would mean the destruction of tens of millions of people. That's what you know, Stalin did. That's what Hitler did. They thought, they schemed, they planned, and they acted. And then the second question is, how could entire nations give their assent to those type of schemes and pursue them? Because German soldiers went everywhere. And so did Japanese soldiers went every, everywhere in Asia. And what have they not done? And Italians did too. There, there were concentration camps run by Italians in Africa. And uh, you're talking about almost 500,000 Africans killed by fascist Italy during that time. So these are questions and what the Bible now is pointing us to and we'll pick it up later this evening is that you cannot explain all this just in terms of man. There is something because it is persistent because it is universal because the magnitude of evil is, is unfathomable then there must be something that moves underneath, underneath. That is, this, you know, moving underneath, and not only here and there, but it must be something that moves underneath all through history. All through history. History is very different, it's very diverse. <laughs> Civilizations come and go, but there are, there are some common denominators. And one of these common denominators is just this. This constant pursuit of this one world dominion. Cost what it may. Cost what it may. It doesn't matter if I, I have to kill hundreds of millions of people in the process. We have been able to do that. And what we'll see this evening is that there's something beyond us in the back of all this that is leading all this. And if you think uh, 
so that's why the Bible speaks of evil in terms of uh, of a immoral transgression of God's moral values, but it also speaks of the evil one, of the evil one. There, there must be not only something, but someone who possesses the minds and the hearts of these wicked men, of these devils in human forms, <laughs> and that lead them, that you know, leads them to towards this ultimate goal. And because this is very much what is happening today, we are not to fall asleep today. <laughs> We are not to be distracted. We are to pray. And as we pray, we need to understand what is happening. So that we may be awoken from our sleep, get a handle of what is going on, and then ask the question, what am I to be? What am I to do? <clears throat> or if we want to speak in terms of your local church, what are we to be and what are we to do? in the light of what is happening today.